Hi there and welcome to episode 10 of the Pick and Drive Rugby Podcast. I'm your host, Mitch Foster, and I'm joined with my co-host, Ando Anderson. Hey, mate. How are you, Ando? I'm doing really, really well. Good to be here. How about you? Yeah, I'm good. It's been a good week, so uh, lots to talk about in terms of rugby this week. Mm -hmm. So before we dive into that, I'll just remind people of who we are and what we do. So we're two diehard rugby fans having a weekly chat about all things Aussie rugby. Real, family-friendly, and positive. Get involved. Get involved. Now, well, this is episode 10, Ando. This is pretty exciting for us. We're into <laughs> double digits this week. There's this little part of me that is kind of surprised we've got to episode 10. I'm kind of proud of us, um, <laughs> especially <laughs> since the last, what, f- uh, six have been us trying to figure out what to do when there's no rugby on. So we've had more than half of this podcast has been whilst there is no rugby getting played. I'm kind of proud of that. (laughs) I was thinking about that this week, that we're 10 episodes in now, and I think episode three was when Super Rugby was paused indefinitely. So we had two episodes of rugby and then just us chatting for seven (laughs) episodes. So I think we've done well. But people are still listening. So if people are listening, we'll keep making the pods. We love that you're still involved. So thank you. (laughs) That's a nice segue into what we're doing this week, actually. So. Tonight we'll be answering some questions from you, our fans, that we've received via our different social media platforms, um, and we'll also tra- talk about some of the news that's happened this week as well. So um, why don't you go through our socials, Ando? Awesome. Well, we're on Instagram at hashtag pick underscore drive underscore rugby, and the main one we're particularly pushing is Facebook as well, which you can just search for us at the Pick and Drive Rugby Podcast. Awesome. Awesome. Yeah, we'd love to hear from you on our social media. We've got um, some cool stuff up on there, so definitely get involved and get around it. Awesome. Keen um, to hear your thoughts. Yeah, let's go. Let's get into the, the rugby chat this week. So let's go into this, uh, the news of the week. All right, we move now to our spicy news for the week, and there are some pretty big developments in global rugby and also some exciting opportunities ahead for Australian and potentially New Zealand rugby too. So why don't we start, Mitch, with the big news out of world rugby that Bill Beaumont, Sir Bill Beaumont, excuse me, has been re-elected as world rugby chairman, defeating the... uh, challenge of Augustine Pichot, who was the previous uh, vice chairman. So it has happened. The news came out a lot earlier because it was um, they didn't need a second round of voting because it was close enough for, um, for Beaumont to win. So unfortunately, in some ways for Rugby Australia, well, Southern Hemisphere countries generally who voted for Pichot, they didn't get their man. Thoughts, opinions? It was a lot tighter race than I think a lot of people initially anticipated. Yeah. The yeah. final numbers were 28 votes for Beaumont and 23 votes for Pichot. Mm. So interesting there that there was that sort of five votes in it, really. I was a little bit surprised, to be honest, that um, Beaumont did get it. But I think when you look at the nations who voted for and against, it sort yeah. of did seem like it was a split between the Southern Hemisphere really did align with Yep. Pichot and, and the Northern Hemisphere did align with Beaumont. Well, I was reading an article talking about um, some of... The, there were a couple of challenges that Pichot was facing within this. One is that he is supposedly quite a charismatic figure and a lot yep. of the persuasive power that he has is kind of 
personable person to person yep. so he's able to communicate and really draw you into the vision and a direction that he's putting forward but when you can't travel internationally and you can't go and meet the people or the representatives that you're trying to talk to and it's like a zoom conference call or something like that yeah like, there's only so much that charisma will get you when you're not in a room with the person so that was one yeah that makes it really hard yeah and then um the other point that i i read was that he um he had this very idealistic view of a vision that he wanted for rugby, but he wouldn't yep. really compromise on it. And he wouldn't, um, I'm not, he wouldn't, what's, what's the right word? He wouldn't do deals. Right. He wouldn't, he wouldn't say, okay, if you, yeah, if you vote for me, then I'll do this for you. And so one of the reports that's coming out is that the re- one of the reasons why Fiji actually voted for Beaumont um, when nearly all Fiji and Japan were two key Southern Hemisphere nations that actually voted for Beaumont over Pichot. Oh, I didn't realize that. Wow. Yeah, yeah. And so one of the one of the um, pieces of news that's coming out is that supposedly the eligibility restrictions for Tier Two nations are going to be reduced, where a player who was played for a Tier One nation may make the decision to kind of renege on that and then go and play for a tier two so for example the player plays for australia or new zealand or um, maybe some of the english players who are of kind of polynesian descent um, they want to go back and play for tonga or samoa someone like that then they can do that in a latter stage of their career if they want or really at any time in their career but they just can't make the jump back to tier one after that yeah so it's like a one-way shift um and that's something that beaumont put forward yeah, yeah. That was one of his sort of election, I guess, campaigns. Yep. In a way, and policies. Exactly. Yeah, policies. And so you just wonder if that was one of the key, if that was a negotiating point with Fiji, because Fiji would, and a lot of the Islander teams would be a lot more competitive and a lot more, um, yeah, well, yeah, competitive if they had the top tier talent that are playing. Yeah. Um, some of the tier one nations like Australia, New Zealand, and England, and even Wales. Um, they would, they would be a much better team. And so, yeah, supposedly Pichot wouldn't do deals like that because he's had a fair bit of idealism and maybe there might be a sense of naivety in that too. Yeah, maybe that comes from his the, like his approach to rugby being a South American country in mm-hmm. that they don't sort of have that ability and the, the dual citizenship thing to worry about as much as sort of the Pacific yep. Islands and Australia and um England and New Zealand, really. Yep. But as you said, it's interesting because I did see an article this week uh, come out. I think it was on the Rugby Pass that was saying um, Tung Kelly Nayaravoro has announced that he wishes to play for Fiji. Now he yeah. is a, he's a capped Wallaby. Yep. So I read this and thought, what what's this all about? He can't go and play for Fiji now that he's a, a played for the Wallabies. Yep. But under these new rules, he can. Well, the potential new rules. Obviously, nothing uh, the, can be introduced Yeah, the yet. potential. Yep. And that's, that must have been where this article came from. Yeah. 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 And so it's interesting to think that. I mean, all right to them. If they want to go play for a country that they have really, really strong connection and heritage with, yeah, fine. That's, that's so okay. Um, but it just means that... It just means that some of the other things that were around Pichot's vision and idea for yeah. rugby weren't going to be going ahead. Although one of the main things that he was wanting to do was trying to create this kind of global calendar yep. or this um, trying to align northern and some of the southern hemisphere uh, rugby. And to his credit, Bill Beaumont 
some of the very first things that he said and put out there is this desire to have that alignment, particularly in the form of a World Nations Championship. Yeah. So this is pretty big news in that supposedly there are plans in the works to create a World Nations Championship, which would basically be a combination. Um, you'd have three tiers. The top tier would be um, six nations with an expanded rugby championship. So you've got Australia, New Zealand, South Africa, Argentina, plus Fiji and Japan to make the six. Um, Put all of them together to make the 12, and that would be the top tier. Then you have emerging emerging nations Div 1 and Div 2, and they would be geographically based. Um, And so there, there aren't too many details around that yet but it seems to be this attempt to try and make sure that the international breaks of spring and autumn are a part of this global um, competition which is trying to leverage a lot of the success and the strength of european and maybe even draw some of the emerging new markets into it too particularly if you see japan coming into um into the rugby championship that's that's one big aspect of that and fiji as well that would be awesome to see. Yeah, Fiji Some would be awesome, but from the financial, um, from the financial point of view, the J- the Japanese inclusion is more yeah. important. Yeah. It's interesting that this has come back up because a similar sort of format was announced uh, 24 months ago mm-hmm. by Beaumont as well. It was something that he was really pushing for, but the European nations and the Six Nations in particular, were the ones that sort of shied away from it and didn't want to Italy and Scotland were the ones that shot it down because they had veto rights. And yeah. They well, there was the whole no. relegation thing. Yeah. Now, I would imagine that in this kind of situation, there would need to be some kind of relegation as well mm. for that emerging nation spot because, like, if you look at the last World Cup, Japan did so well, but Japan was sort of sitting outside of that top 10 um, nations leading into the tournament, but then they made the... They beat Ireland and they beat Scotland and they pushed right through to the quarterfinals. And by the end of the tournament, they were six or five or six in the world rankings. So you you would imagine there would be some kind of um, relegation and promotion system there. Yeah, I mean, from what I remember of why it got shut down in the first place when it was first raised is Italy and Scotland were worried that if there was relegation, um, then they may well be the ones to get relegated because they're the weakest two out of the Six Nations competition, uh, Six Nations teams. Um, And I just wonder if the only way that Beaumont is going to get this through is if he guarantees no relegation from the top down to the emerging nations. Um, I don't know. This that's just pure speculation. But I, guess, it, I, I wonder think, if it's you think it would get to a point where the majority votes would win, and if it comes down to two or three nations who are on that sort of cusp of yep. being relegated from the top tier, mm. then it, the benefit for world rugby would be to go ahead with it. Then they'd have to suck it up and and move. There must forward. be there must be some ongoing issue with kind of deals and arrangements from a Six Nations point of view and a um and a rugby championship point of view. I wonder if there might be issues with broadcasting arrangements and stuff that are already in place that mean anything that comes through with this won't be happening for two, three, four years. Yeah, exactly. uh, Because we need to wait for broadcast deals to expire before anything can be put into place. I mean, there was already talks that South Africa was looking to secede from the rugby championship 
and mm. move up to the Six Nations in an expanded competition. But with the with the TV rights locked in, that wasn't going to happen for another four years. Yep. So, interesting. But yeah, now yeah. that we look at the results of this election, two things that have come out of note um, in response to the fact that Beaumont is now regained his position. New Zealand rugby chairman Brent Impey has congratulated Beaumont in getting the position. Yeah, yeah. But he has warned that um, the power brokers that now run world rugby need to be courageous in this next phase and make the changes that are going to be um, more beneficial to the game and not focused on sort of the, the northern hemisphere is essentially what he's saying. Yep. So if you look at this from a broader perspective, the southern hemisphere nations were really pushing for Pichot because they knew being Argentinian and being of a country that is in the Southern Hemisphere, is part of the rugby championships and is now part of Super Rugby. They thought that there was going to be some kind of equality, I guess, in the way that some of the the changes and laws and things were administered yeah. in World Rugby. Yeah. And now the the powers back in the Northern Hemisphere, he's he's asking for a bit more sort of world world involvement. Mm. I mean, if, if we think back to last week when we were talking around this whole issue, one of the things that seemed to be from like a political machinations point of view was the 2027 World Cup bid and how the Australian backing of Pichot and then the Argentinian withdrawal from yep. supposedly going for the 2027 World Cup were hand in hand. So there's a really good article on Rugby Passes checking that out because one of the initial thoughts I had when Beaumont was re-elected was, oh, crap, does that mean we're not going to be uh, as likely to get the 2027 World Cup? And this is saying that insiders are confident that Bill Beaumont's re-election will not hinder Australia's chances of hosting the 27 World Cup. Um, so there does not seem to be anybody else from the Southern Hemisphere nations that are going to be uh, kind of competing with us for it. Um so it also doesn't look like there's any other nations in world rugby at the moment that are pushing hard for that 2027 tournament. Yeah. Yep. So there is talks that the USA is pushing for a tournament, but they're not going to be ready by 2027, given no. that their current financial situation is that they're bankrupt. Well, they're yeah, they're, they're, administration. they're Yep. Yep. So now they wouldn't be ready in time to host the World Cup in 2027. Mm. But they are looking at the next one after that as potentially running hard for that position 2031 isn't it weird to say that in 2031 it's so far away <laughs> that's 11 years away i i just remember being younger and thinking how far away the year 2000 was and yet we're talking about 30 years after that that's i know that's it's crazy <laughs> sorry i just had like an age moment there um, <laughs> <laughs> like a midlife crisis realization <laughs> right here on the pod everybody you're welcome you just got to experience me having a minor midlife crisis that's okay <laughs> um before, so... we, before we wrap this up the other um the other point of view that has come out was from wales new head coach wayne pivak who pivak. has who has said that um i guess it's another ch it's another topic that has been in negotiation for a while with world rugby about making a, a one global season for the world so we don't have the Northern Hemisphere and the Southern Hemisphere on two separate time zones. Yep. So what he's saying is at the moment, the Southern Hemisphere comes to the North at the end of the year for a tour which is generally pretty tough. Um, and by the end of that tour, the Southern Hemisphere teams are quite tired and, and 
it's been a long year of rugby, but the Northern Hemisphere teams are just starting their season, so they're fresh. So you yep. don't really get that equality of level. Yep. I mean, I can understand what he's saying in some ways, but I, I still wouldn't say that Australia or South Africa or New Zealand have lost those last mat te- one or two test matches because it's the end of the year. No, I think... I, th- I just think in general the idea of trying to unify things between Northern and Southern from a calendar perspective is a good idea. Um, it can lead to, it, hopefully it could lead to better broadcast deals because yeah. um, you might be able to have a wider audience because it's covering even more countries. Um, and maybe that could even mean that there's more money for marketing in individual member nations as well. Uh, so I just think there's lots of benefit for it. Um, it's just really weird to hear the Wales head coach not being Warren Gatland as well. Yeah, how He's been there for so long and now it's Wayne Pivak. And I'm like, who? Who is he? <laughs> I mean, I know he was at Scarlet's, but it, I don't know. It's, it's just still odd to not see that being Warren it Gatland. Would, it really would be interesting to see if this global season does come into effect because rugby is a winter sport throughout the world. And if this is to, to happen, mm-hmm. either our... our um, season times change or the northern hemisphere seasons change and yep. someone's going to have to be playing rugby in summer yeah, that would have to be like okay it wouldn't have to be because they're the most powerful member unions and they'll probably just make us do it but playing rugby union in heat in 35 40 degree heat in the southern hemisphere like that's a health well, and safety we, issue we saw it this year when super rugby kicked off in the last yeah. week of January, the first game in, in in Canberra was played at 31 degrees. And they had that smoke issue as well from exactly. all the bushfires as well. Yeah. Right? But on a positive side, we wouldn't have to deal with the AFL and the NRL if we were playing in summer. We'd be up against cricket, which is a comp- yeah. or potentially soccer, because um, I think their seasons sort of run in between. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but wouldn't that be interesting to think that we'd have less competition for a, a sporting a, a rugby form of code or a football yeah, like code. contact football code. A heavy contact sport yeah yeah how interesting well let's see how that rolls out i'm really interested yeah. i mean as much as kind of rugby in australia sucks on a world level um <laughs> it's interesting to see some of the machinations that are coming through and it's exciting because maybe some positive developments might come through exactly Cool, mate. Well, um, the other, so we've gone from kind of like a global discussion of what the news is on a world rugby point of view. Let's yep. bring it back into Australia now. So there's some pretty exciting news that potentially there is going to be, by the time this podcast comes out, a review or a date set for when rugby is going to return. So maybe we'll need to record a little snippet and shove it in here or something. Yeah, we may do. Well, maybe we will. But uh, supposedly professional rugby is going to have a return to play date, hopefully by Monday. Yeah. Um, and they basically Ben Whitaker, who's the high performance manager. He has submitted everything to the government and is wanting to basically get an answer as soon as possible. And what that might look like, well, we'll find out. It could just be an Australian competition or it may well be a trans-Tasman competition. Although, if we look at what league is having to do, yeah. uh, the New Zealand Warriors have actually just flown into us, been given permission to fly into Australia yeah. um, to participate in the Rugby League restart. Now, what does that actually mean for the 
rugby union, well, maybe we're not going to be able to cross borders regularly, so maybe we'll just have to do the domestic side of things until borders open a little bit more. Who knows? But it's exciting. Maybe we'll have some rugby in the next month. Yeah, let's just bring something back. Even if it's domestic, let's yep. let's get some some form of rugby back on the TV, mm-hmm. and then we can talk about the sort of trans-Tasman position at a later date, I guess. Yeah. Yeah, so maybe home and away with the four Australian teams plus Western Force to make it yep. five. Um, just do home and away or round-robin kind of competition. Just Just keep it simple. And just get some games out there for people to be watching. And then maybe we could bring back one of the old-fashioned tours. Either oh, yeah. bring the All Blacks over here, or we send the Wallabies over to New Zealand. And, and yeah, I was reading. Play. Um, supposedly, some of the senior Australian players or representatives of Rupa, so like Matt Tamua, Damian Fitzpatrick, who's I think he's the head, the players' representative. Yeah, he is. Um, yeah. And Michael Hooper are doing a meetup with or a virtual conference with oh, the, their their New Zealand counterpoints or counterparts to discuss potentials for trans Tasman competitions or that idea of a tour. So Australia or New Zealand doing tour of the opposite countries in order to try and develop that, basically to get some rugby back on and to get some matches happening, but just just to build connection between the two countries. Because even if Australia and New Zealand borders open in yeah. the next few months, we're not going to be flying to Japan. We're not going to be flying to England or America or to France or anything like that. So yeah. Australia and New Zealand are actually doing pretty well in this crisis. So, yeah, it's interesting to see that we might actually have a really close connection with them over the next couple of months. We might have to begin hating Kiwi rugby players a bit less. <laughs> if that was to be the case, if there was to be a tour, what, which option would you prefer? Would you prefer to have the All Blacks come to Australia and tour here or yes. for the Wallabies to go over? Uh, New Zealand to come here. Otherwise, we'd get pumped even more just playing on, in their stadium. Oh, no, but there'd be no crowd. Yeah, there'd be no crowds regardless. Maybe we could finally win at Eden Park. Well, I don't think that would be the case. <laughs> well, no, 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 but think about it. One of the reasons why we don't win is because that's a really intimidating stadium to go to because it's so small, it's so condensed, and the crowd's yeah. so um, raucous. If there's no crowd, that takes out some of the advantage that they have there. I just wonder if that's the best chance we have to win. <laughs> in however many years it's been, um, I would prefer I I would prefer to see the Wallabies go over there and play some of the the, the New Zealand domestic teams. So play the oh, Super yeah, cool. sides and maybe yeah. play some of the Mitre Ten Cup teams midweek, yep. like yep. a good old fashioned Lions series. Yeah, sweet. So you uh, kind of take an expanded squad and then yeah, you have right. the reserves playing midweek. Because I think the games would be better to see the Wallabies play counties manuka or mm-hmm. um, north harbour or someone then it would be to see the all blacks play randwick because yep. i think randwick would still get thumped by 100 points yeah probably <laughs> whereas i where's the uh what is it mitre cup or itm cup mitre 10 cup yeah mitre 10 cup um those teams are much better than the club level in sydney so well, they're they're essentially the nrc teams so. yeah true yeah except yeah 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 um, we'll see what happens. Oh, there was something else I was going to add in there. 
what was it? What was it? What was it? Um, oh well, I can't remember. So <laughs> why don't we move? <laughs> why don't we move on after that exciting little moment at the end there, and we'll move to our listener questions and topics. Let's do it. <laughs> Well, now we move to our listener questions for the week. Now, the first question we've been asked comes f- to us from Robin, and she has asked, or she'd like to hear us discuss how to build rugby in public schools and a way for experienced rugby players to identify and mentor kids with potential, not just in the private school system. Mm. Mm. Well, why don't I speak to the school side of things? And I, because I'm a teacher, and yep. I might let you speak a bit to the identification and mentoring side of things. Uh, so, basically, the majority of public schools, in my experience of having worked in a few of them before, is that they just don't have the money to be offering an expanded um, set of different sports. So if you are wanting more and more students to be participating in rugby union within schools, then I think there really needs to be a couple of clear things. Number one, there really needs to be strong connections between the local rugby union clubs and the schools and potentially trying to provide some support for the teaching of the sport in the sport times that are offered, usually Wednesdays, kind of after lunch onwards is generally the sporting time. Um, so there would need a really strong connection between the club and the school, if possible, if you're trying to grow it in the school. Um, and also potentially grant opportunities from organisations like New South Wales Rugby to be providing opportunities for schools and clubs. Well, they already do it for clubs, but more, more so for schools to be getting necessary equipment. So kind of tackle bags, padding, um, I'm not sure if they need a scrum machine, but they probably would if they need to be practicing scrums and front row yeah. work. Um, but yeah, basically alignment, well, more funding from New South Wales Rugby Union for non-private schools because they've got enough money. Um, I know I work in one. And <laughs> secondly, uh, also the connection between local clubs and schools and maybe support for the teaching of the sport itself. Because a lot of the time with the coaching of school-based teams, um, it may not necessarily be a an incredibly experienced teacher who is r- running that sport or, tr- or running that team or coaching that team. It may well be someone that's played it in the past. It may well be someone that has enthusiasm for sport in general, but they may not have that nuance to be really developing and targeting students of particular skill or growing a wholesale program throughout years seven to 12 if we're just thinking of secondary school Um, although the same concepts apply for primary schools as well so that's my thought about schooling interesting Mm. i don't i would say that i agree with all of that but interesting um but there was a but there's a but, and I'm going to get into that right now. I think that in in terms of the public school system, more onus needs to fall back on New South Wales rugby to yeah, grow yeah, the game yeah. in the schools. So I agree with what you were saying about them being the pathway, but I think it's too big of an ask to get the local clubs to come in and do that mm. because in my experience, local clubs are just run by parents. Yep. So they're, they're the parents, the coaches, the managers – the officials on the day, uh, on the weekend, are the parents of the pe- the kids playing. 
So they're already engaged. These parents won't have the time to go back to school on a Thursday or a Wednesday afternoon to try and run a rugby competition. Yeah, sure. I understand that. So what, uh, ideally what I would like to see, now I, I did grow up in the, the public school system. I went to Pennant Hills uh, High School. We did have a rugby team, but I wouldn't call it a rugby system. Yep. So what currently exists in the public school system, as far as I'm aware, I think there are a few other sort of niche schools here and there that are part of a proper competition. But how it works is on for us, we had sport on a Thursday afternoon. You would have your selection of team sports to play. You'd play ultimate frisbee or rugby or soccer. Or uh, lawn netball. bowls. Don't forget the lawn bowls. They're the sports that you play. <laughs> or you could go and do social sports such as <laughs> tennis or bowling or lawn bowls or something like that. Um, so you play on a Thursday and each week you play against the whole school plays against another local school. So be it Cherry Brook, Carlingford, Taramara, what, whatever, what have you. And at that point, it's, that's basically it. The teachers are there to supervise the sport. They might get an official in to, to referee who's just volunteering their time. Um, but that's basically it. If you win, you win. If you don't, you don't. There's no training. There's no development there. Yep. For the sport to be successful, as it is in sort of the private school system, would need some form of funding from New South Wales rugby and some kind of formal structure around it. So you bring in a a dedicated competition where you've got the schools, you know who you're playing, and you hire a a professional, or not, not necessarily a professional, but just someone who is capable of managing and developing the talent in the school because... That way, you will have you will have the pathways developed to nurture talent and to grow the talent through the system. Yep. Now, at the moment, how it's currently working, how I found it to be, was in my grade particularly, I was probably the only one that played rugby. And we Were didn't you actually... playing for club as well as school at the same yeah. time. Yeah, I was. Yep. Okay. And so we rugby league wasn't even an option. It was rugby union or soccer. Yeah. Our school. So we got a few rugby league players and then myself and a few other people that I could just talk into making up numbers, essentially. (laughs) And we basically ended up playing touch football because no one really knew what they were doing and and that kind of thing. Yeah, and that's um, with Pennant Hills. It is a big school in an area that is generally pretty predisposed towards rugby union. I mean, it's on the North Shore of Sydney. And so with that being the the way that rugby union was at least in your experience what i don't know 10 years ago <laughs> something like that oh yeah I, easily i forget how old you are but that's okay uh, yeah no that, it's about 10 years ago yeah oh look at that okay um and i think yeah y- your point of trying to just just not professionalize but just put in more structures to support the growth and development of students and even or players who are students and even if that is just New South Wales having coordinators that are aligning the programs with the nearby clubs, or you've got people that are part-time coaches who are, who maybe represent two or three clubs in a, in a region. Yeah. And they're the ones that are going into schools on different afternoons and trying to run training sessions or to coach teams. I don't know. It's, it's a hard one to figure out, but basically you just need more trained boots on the ground doing community development but particularly within school public schools yeah. 
um, and just leaving the private schools to really do their own thing because they can do their own thing. That's right. And because they, they have the finances. And, and the systems are there. Correct. Yep. So if they're, I they're was if I was heading up this um, this organization, if I was how I would approach this issue, it's it's going to take a number of years. So mm -hmm. I don't think that you just come in and you make a competition because at the moment the talent's not there and the interest is not there. What yep. you would do is you would you would create a team of coaches, um, officials, that kind of thing, who go into the schools. They go to year sevens in at the the base, the year seven, and yep. they just introduce rugby. They get some of the local super rugby players to come along. They do skill sessions. They hand out tickets to the local the, the the weekend super rugby games. They just expose themselves the, the students to the sport. They go through the rules. They go through basic passing, basic kicking, maybe some basic tackling um, at year seven. And then they continue doing that every year as they go higher and higher so that these students are exposed to the sport mm -hmm. and they've got the players coming through. And then by the time that these students reach year 10, hopefully they've had enough exposure to the sport when you can start bringing in the local clubs to say, if you are interested in playing, you've been doing these skills and we've been building on them for the last couple of years. Yep. Michael Hooper's here. Um, Sakopi Kepu's coming in. Like The players are making themselves known to the to the kids as well. So they've got some kind of contact with the, the state that's representing or the, the team that's representing them. You could even then bring in the Shoot Shield players as well, potentially. I, I, that's probably another yeah. different kind yeah. of topic. Yep. But by that time, they're in year 10. They've had three or four years of exposure to the basic skills of rugby. And if they like it, that would be more of an incentive to go ahead and play it and by that point, that's when you bring in a competition because you've got enough people with the, the basic skills who've gradually been growing in those to have a first 15. Year, by the time they're in year 11 or year 12, they've got the skills to play a first 15 competition. Yep. And you just grow from there. Mate, I, I fully agree with that. But just from a teaching perspective, I'd be even thinking you, you actually would need to start that younger and yeah. kind of be getting that into the public schools, which I'm sure is happening. Um, and I do know that there are like community development offices within New South Wales rugby, but obviously there needs to be more. Yeah. And you then have that skill development occurring earlier so that by the time they're kind of in early high school, I'd be even trying to push it forward to kind of honestly year seven, eight, if they've had that prior exposure to go, okay, cool. This is where we are going to try and align you and connect you with the clubs. Yeah, exactly. And, and from my personal experience as well, being in, um, the community rugby year sort of nine ten is where we got our biggest amount of dropout. It's where players stopped turning up to play for on the weekend. Yep. So we went from the clubs I played at, we went from having three teams to having just under one. And in mm -hmm. some years, when I was in the under 16s, we had to amalgamate. We had three of our local clubs come together to make one team. But that's yep. how bad the situation was. Yeah. I mean welcome to year nine and ten life if it helps it's the same in the classroom trying to get a year nine thing <laughs> do anything in the classroom is just as challenging um but okay i think we've probably spoken about that one enough why don't we move on to the kind of next question that we had from matthew this is a really interesting question so thanks for uh sending this one through matthew maybe we won't read all of it if you just want to summarize the main question i, I have cut some of it out so we'll um <laughs> the 
the crux of the question is, what are the more subtle elements of rugby as a game that make it fun to watch for those who are familiar, but others might not pick up straight away? Yeah, okay. What, what was your initial thought when reading this? This is a brilliant question. I could speak about this for hours. <laughs> okay, we've got 15 minutes on this question. That's it. That's all you got. Do you want me to go first? Um, yeah, I mean, because I've got a few ideas, but you've obviously thought about this a bit more than I have from the sounds yeah. of it, so go for it. Okay. Rugby is such a unique game in that we have so many different points of contest in different formats within the one game. So if you look so you mean at, contest for the ball, competition for the ball, any team can turn it over at any point kind of thing? That's correct, yeah. Okay. So okay. we've got multiple different points of contest within the one game. So if you look at soccer, you've got the option to intercept a pass or you can, I guess you call it a tackle. Is yep. You're a soccer player. Is that the tackle where... Football, but yes, tackle. <laughs> you, um, you can steal the ball off the player who's got it. That's kind of it. Or if you have a shot at goal and you miss. Yep. So you've got those two points of sort of contest. In rugby league, it's kind of the kick contest because once you've got the ball, you can't really turn it over until you complete the set of tackles. Oh, and you get one-on-one one stripped. Yep. Yeah, but that doesn't really happen all that often. No, because um, they never tackle one-on-one. -on -one. It's always like three or four people in one tackle. Well, they don't know how to tackle. But anyway, <laughs> that's another point. In rugby, ev nearly every single part of the, the game is a contest for the ball. Yeah. Now, I can understand to an unfamiliar person that it does look like just a bunch of blokes running around, getting into huddles, and suddenly the ball spits out. And you, What happened there? But to the initiated fan, um, it is such a unique aspect of the game, and it is so interesting because so many different things happen and so many different people, players with either their background or their country, have different approaches to those different set pieces, we'll call them. Yep. yep. So watching a scrum between watching a scrum between two Australian teams and then watching a scrum between an Australian team and a New Zealand team will have completely different outcomes. And it's not going to be the same. Yep. That and that's really what I love about that's one of the things I love most about rugby is that every there's so much happening and there are so many sort of intricate details that it just keeps you engaged. Yeah, and I think that's one of the um, – I remember when we were speaking to Garth when he came onto the pod a few episodes ago and yeah. um, we were discussing how for him – the 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 fact that there were South African, Japanese, um, Argentinian, and New Zealand teams in a one competition that wasn't really a draw card for him, but yet for what you're speaking about right now, and I I agree with that kind of there's so many different ways you can appreciate what's going on, being able to observe and kind of follow the different ways that teams play the game is one of the draw cards for. Yeah someone that knows what to look for. Now, exactly. I'm not saying I'm an expert game analyst, but I do know the general tendencies of different teams and how they play. Um, so, for example, the Jaguares are a very, very abrasive forward-running team, but they try to do that in order to initiate a high-tempo offload game. 
-hmm. So they are at their most dangerous when their forwards are running hard onto the ball, but standing upright in the tackle and then getting that quick little pass away to the waiting runner to then continue that process. Yeah. And that's something that is it's not uniquely Argentinian because the French national team, when they do it really well, when, when they choose to, are very good at it as well. Yeah. Um, but it is just a particular way that the Jaguares have played over the last couple of years, as well as having explosively fast outside backs as well. Um, whereas if you look at some of the rugby, the South African rugby teams like the Bulls or the Sharks, actually the Bulls particularly, um, they have been heavily forward set piece focused. Dominic. So they'll yeah. be going to scrum you into the ground to get the penalty, then kick for the corner, then go for a line out and drive it over the line. Yeah, And that's how they'll be trying to play. And in some ways, the Brumbies over the last five, six years, the Australian team, the Brumbies have mirrored that as well, although they've now in the last, well, this season for the seven weeks that we had, um, actually a bit of last season too, we're trying to unleash a wider attacking game yep. to complement that as well. So it's just, there is a level of nuance from it. And that international flavor really does add something to the viewing experience, but only if you kind of choose to appreciate it that way and not just yeah. say, well, the Bulls suck because they play that way, or, or the South African teams suck because they play that way. Um, or English rugby is just boring because all they do is just kick penalties the entire time. Well, they do that because of the conditions that most of their season is played in. It's like torrentially raining for half the season. Um, so there's, if you can appreciate it, then uh, there is more value that you can take from the game. But a lot of people who don't know the game of rugby that well will yeah. understandably see the differences and go, this is just confusing. It doesn't yeah. make sense. And I don't understand the differences between them. Yeah, well, that's when we were speaking to Garth last, was it last week? Uh, a week before, weeks ago. when we yeah. spoke to Garth, I asked him if he thought, being a, a rugby league and, a, and an AFL fan, I thought I asked him if he thought that rugby union was an inaccessible game. He he, I was surprised with his answer that he he didn't think that it was. Yep. Um, but I very much do think that rugby is inaccessible to the casual viewer, mm. because to someone who's sitting watching a casual game who might watch one or two matches a year, maybe a Bledisloe Cup match or the World Cup when it comes around every four years, it, I can understand that it would seem quite boring because you don't understand what's actually happening. Yep. Yeah. And, I mean, that's one of the things that Rugby League really has going for it. And I actually kind of pay out Rugby League a bit for this, but it's just it's incredibly simple. You have six tackles. So the, they'll run it up hard three times in the middle of the park Maybe yeah. for one or two tackles, they'll then look to pass it maybe two or three passes wide and see if there's something happening on the edges. And then if they're not anywhere near the top, the try line, they'll kick. And they'll try and do a contestable kick. Or they'll just boot it as far down the field as they possibly can and make sure they have a connected defensive line. And then it starts again. The opposition then does the exact same thing. Three, then two, then kick. Three, then two, then kick. Three, then two, then kick. And that's how the game plays. Yeah. And... I personally find that really boring, which yeah. is why I've actually shifted over to being a rugby union fan in the last few years. Um, but I can see the appeal of the simplicity for the casual viewer that it brings. And even me, like, I don't particularly like rugby league, but I'll watch every State of Origin match. I'll watch it with Garth. Yeah. And we'll yell at the TV and abuse Queensland for being Queenslanders, and it's fun. But 
it's it's just so different to rugby union and i can un- understand why there could be a point of disconnect between a rugby league fan trying to or even just a casual sports fan tuning into rugby union going whoa this is there are so many different things happening this is really confusing exactly i think it's the the rugby league example that you just said is is hilarious um my wife when we first started going out she wasn't that much of a sport fan at all i'm a big rugby very well i'm a rugby union fan so she's been i've slowly chipped away at her with the games sort of on every weekend and that kind of thing throughout the year but now she she says that she's not a rugby fan but um, she'll sit down and watch a game. Um, we'll get her I, onto the pod, and she will talk a lot about rugby union. She, she will. knows a lot. <laughs> I um the other week I put on just a documentary on Ko the the Gat Trick. Oh yeah. In the middle of the day, I think it was a Sunday. There was no rugby on, so I just started watching that because I was a bit bored. Um, she was on the table doing some sewing or something. Ten minutes later, she's sitting on the couch next to me watching it as well. Oh, what a hero! <laughs> Both like, of you. Well, well I, I, I thought you didn't like rugby, and she's like, "Shush, shush, shush, shush." I just need to see what happens here. <laughs> <laughs> but back to the point is that now my um my brother is a big league fan, so if we go over to my parents' house because he still lives with my parents, if we go over there on the on a weekend and the rugby league's on, he'll have it on in the other room, or he'll have it on, and we might just sort of casually come in and watch it for a little bit, and she'll just stand there and she's like, "I don't get this." It's so boring. How do you watch <laughs> yes, this? What a woman. <laughs> and I'm oh, just, look, it's, and it's I think my, that... my proudest, proudest work right there. Yeah. <laughs> well done. Well done. And we will have her onto the pod. She's an absolute legend. <laughs> um, but one of, I think if we just go back to Matt's question yeah. of what are the subtle elements, I think we've really targeted that and pointed that out. Um, also, I think some of the added level of nuance comes in areas like lineouts where understanding the um the difference in where you throw in who you throw to in a lineout if you're going front if you're going middle if you're going tail what are the scales of difficulty in those different choices and in what options does that open up for you on first phase attack play yeah um or you look at things like clearance trying to organize plays to clear from your own 22 and um will will teams do kind of two hit ups and then just go for the clearance kick out into the sideline or will like many northern hemisphere teams do they'll kind of try and do a couple of hit ups to try and get a bit of space but then do a up and under a box kick but the better teams have timed that box kick down to the perfect hang time to enable the, their players to get up and either contest for it or to sack it as soon as it's um, caught and then try and get a turnover there. Yeah. So there's different elements to it where even some of the basic things like clearance kicks are really complex or not necessarily complex, but there's more going on than what you might have exactly. first thought. Yeah. To answer the question plainly, we can't really answer the question plainly. The subtle <laughs> elements of rugby is that rugby as a game is very detailed. Yeah. So for a casual viewer, it, there's not really anything that I can say. You're got there's something that you're gonna focus on which will be attractive to you. Maybe just the open play running, but even then, that doesn't happen as much as it used to. It's becoming more and more of a structured game in that the the contest is now in the breakdown and 
at the lineouts and at the scrum. Like every time there is a, a contest for the ball, it is very, very detailed. Yep. So as you just example, the lineout, the scrum, mm. the breakdown, the tackle. It, it's I I do I do think that it is an inaccessible sport, and I don't know how we get new people to to understand and appreciate it. Yep. I think is- um, we were talking about this last week or a couple of weeks ago where um, you, you were recalling your experience in Japan and yep. how at the World Cup they had uh, little explanations and, and um, kind of things that were happening within a stadium before the game and, and at halftime. Yep. There were explanations of laws and sequences of play and yep. explaining what's going on there to a casual fan. I think if there's more of a focus on that in the broadcasting and even the in-game, the in-stadium experience or the match day yeah. experience is what I want, um, where they have a bit of a focus on explanation of law, yeah, of, definitely. of laws and talking, even like I was just saying about lineouts, you could very easily produce a quick 30-second video that explains the difference between a kind of close mid or, or uh, to the front, to the middle or to the tail of the lineout and then what options that opens up for the attacking play that's a 30 second video that you can easily be playing when they're before the game during the middle of the game if there's an extended injury break or something like that and what that's doing is helping to educate the population about what's going on definitely yeah i I mean from a lineup you kind of really have three three options you either got the the pass off the top yep bring the ball to ground or maul it that's yep. kind of the three things that you can do. So that that'd be that could definitely happen. Exactly. And then with the pass off the top, where is the most challenging area to be throwing to? What are the benefits of throwing to that area to and what does that enable for that pass wide and that first like that kind of thing. Yeah, so exactly. I think there's there's potential there. Um is there anything else you wanted to add in response to Matthew's question? Um I guess in some ways rugby's for a fan that's not, or for a, a casual sport viewer, I would say rugby is a better sport to watch on TV than it is to watch at the at the ground. Yeah, which is challenging because, when you want to get crowd numbers, hey? Exactly, because with the TV, you've got the commentators who will tell you most of the time what's happening, and generally they're right. Mm-hmm. Um, you've also got the close-up angles to be able to see in the breakdown what's happening. And now they're introducing this more and more, but with the scrums, you've also got the spider cam up the top so you can see the other angles whereas when you're at the at the ground you really don't know what's happening so watch more rugby videos that's what (laughs) i suggest just thinking about that i just remember um in the waratahs final against the crusaders and when richie mccall got sent off i remember being at the ground having absolutely no idea what had happened or why he'd been sent off but just absolutely just going off my nut just going yeah sucked in <laughs> i got no idea why he's being sent off but i was just so incredible <laughs> so so you're right when you're at the ground it's hard to always follow what's happening um and i'm pretty sure it was Bryony that was saying was it Bryony that suggested maybe hooking the yeah. referee up so you can hear the calls and decisions that are being made yeah 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 cool so again that would be improving the match day experience exactly too. Yeah. Um, All right, cool. Any other questions we needed to address there? I don't think so. I think that's everything we've got for now. Okay, awesome. Well, just a quick reminder, we love having opportunities to address 
the kind of questions, comments, ideas of our listeners. So please jump on to our Facebook and Instagram accounts and get in touch with us. We're putting out posts relatively regularly, a couple of a week, just giving updates. So please respond to those and we'll, we'll be giving you shout outs on the pod. It's great to hear from our audience and we'd love to be responding back to you. Yeah, thanks guys. All right, so this is a quick heads up for a pretty fun thing we're going to be doing next week. We decided after the incredible success of our Pick a Wallabies team, where we got absolutely hammered for some of the fun choices that we made in those teams, <laughs> well, why don't we just do that again? Except this time, in honor of Anzac Day, which has just come and gone, we are going to be selecting our Anzac teams. Now, we are going to be putting a couple of rules into place. Mitch, do you want to touch on the first two rules that we're going to put okay. in? Okay. So the first two. Now, we're going to name our 15-man squad, not 23 this squad. time. Yep. 15. Um, first two rules. They must be Australian and New Zealand players. Cool. Nice and obvious. Anzac. Obvious. Aussie, New Zealand. All right. Now, they one. must be Australian and New Zealand players playing super rugby. Yeah. Good That's point. the first one. Yep. Rule number two is that we can have two Anzac international wild cards so that means players that aren't necessarily playing super rugby but are still they still must be anzac players australia or new zealand but they can be playing anywhere in the world okay cool now we also rule number three we are allowed to have one heritage player so that is a player that has retired from the game also an anzac we are allowed to have as rule number four one young gun so it's an under 21 player actually and it's not even allowed we must have a young gun in our team which means that there's almost definitely going to be a lot of arguments saying oh why did you leave this person out and put it under 21 players well it's because it was the rule we had the rule (laughs) um and it's a bit of fun anyway so there'll be a lot of discussion about who we're leaving out in place of the under 21 and why and that kind of thing um and then lastly we are going to be selecting our Anzac coach. So it must be an Australian or a New Zealander uh, rugby coach to be overseeing this Anzac team. Now How does that coach, sound, Mitch? This coach doesn't have to be currently coaching. It can Not be a currently. Coach, it, like it can be a coach from anywhere in the past. Anywhere in the past, so long as they are Australian Australia or, New, or New, Zealand. New Zealand. That's right. Yep. Good. So now, does Eddie Jones count? Yeah, because he's Aussie. <laughs> He's Aussie. He's coaching for the enemy, but yes, he's Aussie. <laughs> yes. No. Cool. All right. So how does that sound, mate? You excited? That sounds awesome. It's going to be so good. Now, um, let's see. We're going to put this up on social media. Let's see how many people select their teams. We'll put the rules up as well. I want to see how many people for um, number three, the heritage player, go with Jonah Lomu. Oh, of course. It's just yeah. everyone's going to put... You can't go past Lomu. Well... <laughs> I'm almost definitely going to go past Lomu just because everyone's going to go for Lomu. So I just kind of want to choose someone that's different. But (laughs) I'm now thinking all this. Imagine like, no, I won't say it. I won't say it. I've got a whole bunch of people I'm thinking of that are just these classic players that would be so much fun to have in a team like this. Okay, cool. Yeah, I'm really excited. This is going to be good. Cool. Cool. I'm excited too. It's going to be awesome. Yeah, so the the key thing about this, everybody, is it'd be even better if we had a whole bunch of people selecting their own Anzac teams. So please think about it. Think who you would be selecting. Post it up on our socials on Facebook or Instagram. So on Facebook, yeah, just jump at us at Pick and Drive Rugby 
uh, as the group and on Instagram, hashtag pick underscore drive underscore rugby. We'll put them both up on there. So please get back to us. Cool. We look forward to seeing all of your suggestions and we will announce our teams next week on the pod. Yeah, and there's going to be a lot of argument and a lot of debate about why we included or who we included. Uh, So make sure you tune in and looking forward to speaking to you then, Mitch. Cool. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Pick and Drive Rugby Podcast. You can follow us on social media at the following outlets. Follow our Facebook page at Pick and Drive Rugby Podcast. Send us a tweet at at pick underscore drive rugby. Follow our Instagram at pick underscore drive underscore rugby or send us an email at pickanddriverugby at gmail.com. We'd love to hear any questions or feedback you may have, so get in touch. Thanks again for listening and we'll catch you next week.